Very appropriate song for Good Friday, I believe. Well, it is Good Friday on the traditional liturgical calendar of the Christian church, and our church had a Monday Thursday service uh, last evening that I thought was very, uh, very special, and I know many will be uh, having Good Friday services today around, uh, around the world, uh, and I thought it would be appropriate on this Good Friday to bring a message uh, related to the events of that first Good Friday. <clears throat> so I want, I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, the 15th chapter. We'll be looking at verses 27 through 32. And I want to speak to you this morning on the only deathbed conversion in the Bible. The only deathbed conversion in the Bible. Mark 15, beginning with verse 27. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ the king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. May we pray. Our Father, we come to you this morning on this Good Friday, on this special week of the year, and yet we realize that every Sunday, every Lord's Day is really Resurrection Sunday. We remember and commemorate the risen Lord every week, but it is important since it is in our cultural calendar to pause and to reflect in a special way this time of year, and so we aim to do that today, Lord, and I pray that you'd help me as one that this song that we've just heard speaks of, Lord, I, I am dirty, but you are clean, and I stand here not in my own righteousness, but in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, in the righteousness of another. And Father, I'm humbled and I'm grateful for your grace in my own life. And Father, I pray that you'd help us all today to reflect well on the death, the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus and the events surrounding that with these two criminals. And Lord, we pray that you'd give us insight and humble us. And Lord, make us grateful for your grace and for the grace of God that is available to repentant, believing sinners. And we pray... Now for your help in Jesus' name, amen. It cannot be too often or too loudly or too solemnly repeated that the Bible, which ranges over a period of 4,000 years, records but one instance of a deathbed conversion, one that none may despair and but one that none may presume. That quote came from Thomas Guthrie, who lived from 1803 to 1873. He was a Scottish preacher. He wrote that in chapter 1 of his book, Early Piety. And so he's pointing out that there's one instance of a deathbed conversion, one that none may despair. Thank God that there are deathbed conversions. But only one in the scriptures that we might not presume that we will have that opportunity. Well, on December 16, 2011... Some of you will know the name Dr. Russell Moore, president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, former dean of theology at Southern. He wrote an article 
about a well-known atheist who died that year, Christopher Hitchens. Some of you have may, maybe have seen the, the video collusion or collision uh, of debates between uh, Christopher Hitchens and Pastor Doug Wilson as they traveled around the country together and debated one another. And Christopher Hitchens died that year of cancer. He was a very vocal, militant atheist. I actually enjoyed listening to him, though. I always found him uh, insightful and helped me in my own way to interact with atheism. And Dr. Moore wrote an article after Christopher Hitchens' death titled, Christopher Hitchens Might Be in Heaven. Caught our attention, and Dr. Moore began that article with these words. He said, Christopher Hitchens, the world's most famously caustic atheist, is now dead. Hitchens expected this moment, of course, but he anticipated wrongly a blackness, a going out of consciousness forever. Many Christians today are sadly remarking on what it is like for Christopher Hitchens to now be opening his eyes in hell. We might be wrong. I'll continue what he says later in this message, but let me pause there. Let's look into the text for a moment. We'll come back. I want us to see in verses 27 and 28, uh, depending on your translation, you may or may not have a verse 28. In the ESV, there's a footnote. Uh, we've been talking somewhat about textual criticism and hermeneutics, and you'll see there's a footnote if you have an ESV that says, some manuscripts insert verse 28, which says, and the scripture was fulfilled, that says he was numbered with the transgressors. Now, I don't, have to talk, I don't have time to talk about why that should or should not be in there, but let's assume that it should be, and I'll read verses 27 and 28 and interact with it. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right hand and one on his left, Verse 28, and the scripture was fulfilled that says he was numbered with the transgressors. Now let's consider the company, okay, that day, that first Good Friday, the company with whom Christ was crucified. And let's notice the cause of their crucifixion. Mark says, and with him they, they crucified two robbers. Now Luke says, in Luke 23, 32, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. Now the word translated robbers here in Mark can and often does mean robbers. It can also mean, depending on context, insurrectionist, rebel, or revolutionary. And so it's possible, it seems to me, that these men were more likely uh, insurrectionists. They were political threats to Rome. And they were being put on the crosses because of that capital offense. Not just mere, you know, they're not uh, pocket thieves. These seem to be much more severe threats to the government. And since robbery was not punishable by crucifixion under Roman law, it does seem to me to be better translated or understood here, rebel or revolutionary. You may recall that in addition to being called murderer and revolutionary, Barabbas was called a robber by John. And so if we put all this together, it appears that these criminals, whatever they had done, were possibly partners in crime with Barabbas. And you notice the arrangement of the crosses in verse 27. Uh, one was on his right hand, and one on his left. And so in one sense, it was a, a gross injustice to crucify Jesus of Nazareth between two common criminals, but this arrangement of crosses is one of, I think, great identification in the Scriptures. I, I think about Jesus' ministry, and, you know, culminating at this point, and I think of uh, back in Mark chapter 2, verses 15 and 17, very early in Jesus' ministry, he was reclining at a table, in the house of a tax collector. Uh, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him 
and the scriptures or the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, "Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners?" When Jesus heard it, of course, he said those great words: "Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." You know, Jesus is a friend of sinners. His company all along had been these kind of people, right? Thank God for that. Uh, Matthew eleven nineteen says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, Jesus said, and they, they said, to him, said to him, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. They meant that as an insult. He took it as a compliment. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so to, to Zacchaeus, Jesus said, uh, said, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Well, look, Jesus is a friend of sinners. Thank God that he's a friend of sinners. Throughout his life, he has identified with sinners. How appropriate that he would then be crucified between two of them. He came to identify with sinners. We see it in his genealogy. I mean, his genealogy is replete with, with mess, sinful, messy people in his bloodline, according to his human nature. And so we do not know the names of either of these two criminals that kept him company at the cross. Perhaps they could be, you know, any of us. But I do think it's reasonable to assume that Barabbas was intended for the middle cross that day, right? I mean, what a graphic, very literal picture of substitution. That Barabbas has been taken from that cross that day and Jesus is dying literally in his place in that middle cross. You know, there's another bit of irony here. If you read back in Mark chapter 10, uh, there were two disciples, James and John, who had made a request of Jesus. Beginning at verse 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we, do, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Very humble. Do whatever we want you to do, Lord. He said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left. In your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We're able. Oh, really? Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. The ten heard it. They began to be indignant at James and John. Jesus begins to, to teach them about humility. Very appropriately so. Think about that. They're asking to be on the right and left because they still have the wrong definition of a, of a Messiah. They still have the mindset of, of immediate, uh, temporal, earthly glory, military conqueror, uh, political revolutionary, social reformer. They've got the wrong definition of Messiah still. They think they're going to Jerusalem to sit on thrones in the kingdom. Oh, they're going to Jerusalem, and he's going to Jerusalem all right. And there will be one on his right and there will be one on his left. But it won't look like what they thought. And he says, are you able to partake of the sufferings? And so the, the crucifixion depicted for these brothers once he's on the cross, what it obtains, what it takes to obtain those positions of on the right and the left. Uh, as a reminder of, I wonder if those words came back to them and haunted them that day. And so God himself was behind this arrangement. If we look at verse 28, the scripture was fulfilled that says he was numbered with the transgressors. And so by positioning Jesus between two criminals, Pilate may have intended 
this to be an insult to the Jews, implying your king is no better than a common criminal. But whatever man's intention, God's intention was to fulfill his word. Because you find that quote in Isaiah 53, 12. That he was numbered with the transgressors. And so we see the company with whom Christ was crucified on his right and his left that day on Calvary. And then we see the crowd before whom Christ was crucified. The crowd before whom he was crucified in verses 29 and 30. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Now Luke says in Luke 23, 35, And the people, the crowd, stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him. Now those who passed by were not necessarily those who had followed the execution squad to Calvary, but they were possibly just simply travelers on the road coming in and out of Jerusalem. Because we know the, crucif the crucifixions would have been on a public, busy highway of the day because Rome wanted people to see and fear. And we see in the crowd these hateful gestures in verse 29. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their head. Again, a fulfillment of Psalm of the Old Testament, Psalm 22, where we see David writing years, centuries before crucifixion's even been invented. And he says in Psalm 22, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Okay? Find it, it finds its greater fulfillment in the Lord Jesus. So we see their hateful gestures, and we can hear their verbal attacks here in verse 29. They're saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Matthew says in 2740, If you are the Son of God, they said, come down from the cross. So this aha, you know, this is like a, a victorious glee uh, response of, of ridicule and accomplishment that they finally got him where they want him. And the passers-by are shouting taunts, even temptations. And these insults and satanic temptations are, are, are like the, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry when he was in the wilderness with Satan and, and, and the devil was there. If you are the Son of God, he was saying then, three and a half years later, they're still saying, if you are the Son of God, come down. And Satan's still tempting Jesus He's still seeking to subvert the redemptive plan. He still wants to overturn Genesis 3.15. At the cross, the first gospel promise, he wants to subvert redemption at the very moment of its accomplishment, even when Jesus is physically weaker than he was even in the wilderness. You notice the statement in verse 29. Uh, this was one of the accusations during the Jewish phase of Jesus' trial in chapter 14. 58 and 59, Jesus never said, by the way, that he was going to destroy the temple, the, the physical complex, that he was going to do it. He said that if they destroyed this temple, then he would raise it up in three days. And they were destroying the temple. They were destroying the temple that day. And he would rebuild it in three days. Right? Now the question comes up here, I think it's just good for us to pause and reflect and thank God. Could Jesus have saved himself? They said, if you are the Son of God, save yourself and come down from the cross. And the answer is yes and no. I mean, as, as God, as the divine second person of the Godhead, yes, Jesus could have saved himself. Jesus said so. John chapter 10, good shepherd discourse, Jesus said, uh, the Father loves me because I lay down my life 
and I, I will take it up again. Right? None of us can say that. Jesus can say that. Jesus can say, I determine the hour of my death and the hour of my life, my resurrection. I lay it down. I take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. Yes, he could have saved himself. Or, or how about in Matthew chapter 26, verse 53? Do you, do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Right? I mean, all he's got to do is just issue the call and it's over. They're over. Yes, he could have saved himself in his deity. But in another sense, no. Because Jesus always does and did that which pleased the Father. Right? He's in the garden praying, Lord, Father, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He knows this is why he came. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came as the, the, the atoning sacrificial lamb. Jesus would not save himself because the cross was the Father's will. It was the will of the Father to crush him. Isaiah 53. And so the question here also reveals the people's distorted notions about what truly defines the work of the Messiah and points to the true definition of a suffering servant Messiah. I mean, what if Jesus had saved himself and come down and descended from the cross? Had Jesus come down, we would not be saved. God's power would, yes, it would be displayed, but redemption for anyone would have been null and void. There would have been no redemption. And so in that sense, it was a divinely ordered impossibility. Matthew 26, 54 said, But how then should the Scriptures be filled, be fulfilled that it must be so? I just want to ask you, I think it's appropriate we just stop and say, aren't you glad that on Good Friday He didn't come down? I mean, aren't you glad that He didn't give in to the temptation to prove Himself? In, in response to that question, aren't you glad that He didn't save Himself? Thank God that Jesus gave himself and he stayed there until the atonement was complete and my salvation was accomplished. Or we wouldn't be here today. We would be in hell or on our way. And so we see the company with whom Christ was crucified, the one on the right, the one on the left, criminals. We see the crowd before whom Christ was crucified and then we see the criminals before whom Christ was crucified. You might say, well, I thought we already dealt with the criminals. Oh, they're not the only criminals there that day. In verse 31, there are other criminals in front of Jesus. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. And so, so delighted are the Jewish authorities that Jesus is finally on a cross. They lose all composure and they join the passers-by in insulting Jesus, but with one difference. Whereas the passerbys address Jesus directly with their insults, they will not even dignify the Son of God by looking Him in the face and speaking to Him. There is never one instance in the Gospels that's recorded that the Jewish leaders ever address Jesus directly on the cross. What an insult. They talk amongst themselves about Him, but never to Him. And so the Jewish authorities, they're, these, these are criminals. They're guilty of the very thing they condemn Jesus for. And that's blasphemy. They're blaspheming the Son of God. 
The worst criminals, you might even say, are not the guys on the right and the left. They're the guys in front of them. And so what are their crimes? Well, when you read the Gospels, you see that there's conspiracy to commit murder, falsified charges, unethical conduct, corruption, willingly admitting perjured witnesses, contempt of court, assault, and premeditated first-degree murder. You know, it's funny, they, they unintentionally admit their own guilt in verse 31. They say, he saved others. You notice they acknowledge that? Jesus' enemies never denied his miracles. They never denied his miracles. They couldn't. They saw them. They were undeniable. In fact, they, they acknowledge here their authenticity, which, which increases their guilt. He saved others. We saw him do it. He saved others all kinds of ways. John eleven forty seven, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council, the Sanhedrin, and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. They acknowledged it. Now, of course, they attributed early in his ministry his power and his miracles to the devil. Mark 3.22, the scribes came down to Jerusalem saying he's possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He casts out the demons. Jesus says that's, that's ridiculous. It's irrational. Uh, uh, you know, a house that is divided cannot stand. What you're saying doesn't even make sense, but that's the insanity of sin when we go down that road. And so they have this warped, irrational assessment when they say, on the one hand, he saved others. Yeah, that's true. But then they say, he cannot save himself. That's not true. We know that's not true. I mean, if Jesus could perform those miracles, could he not miraculously save himself? And if he wasn't doing so, could they not have stopped to say, maybe there's a good reason why? But they didn't, they didn't think about these things. Matthew 27, 43 says, he trusts in God. They said, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. If he desires him, for he said, I am the Son of God. So that we see the company, the, the, the men on the right and on the left, we see the crowd, we see the other criminals in that crowd. And then we see the claim before which Christ was crucified. In verse 32, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. They claim. Oh, if it'll happen, if he'll do it. Oh, we'll submit. We'll believe. Now, here it's good for us again to remember, as you read the Gospels, the, the wrong Jewish, at this time, con conception and expectation of a Messiah. Now, on the one hand, Jesus did make the double claim to be both Christ and King of Israel. You can see that in chapter 14, 62, 15, 2. But he was not the kind of Messiah, he was not the kind of King that they were expecting, that they wanted. You see that in John chapter 6. They're going to take Jesus by force and make him king. And he'll have nothing of it. By the end of that chapter, they're all gone, except for the disciples, a handful of disciples. They're all offended because he's not going to meet their demands. And when we don't give them what, we, what they want, he's going to, they're going to say, throw him to the wolves, put him on the cross. Nevertheless, several clues here in chapter 15 indicate that God understood Jesus' sufferings in a sense to be, ironically, this is his, his royal enthronement. He is the king of, of Israel. And he is the Messiah. And the, and the scriptures communicate that in a way they just didn't expect. You know, there was a purple robe, royalty, the color of royalty. There, there was the crown of thorns. 
There was the reed scepter that a king would hold. There were the salutes that they would give in mockery, the homage and submission they would mockingly pay. There were the titles that they gave him. They called him the king of the Jews. There was the inscription on the cross, here's your king. All of these things are saying, uh, mocking the fact that he's royalty, and yet he, he really is. He is, he is who they, they say he is, but not the way they want him. Now, did you pick up on the mistaken claim that they made that if he would come down that they would believe? Their claim was that if he would miraculously remove himself from the cross, then that empirical evidence would just, would just cause them to believe. They'd just fall at their knees and cry holy. Wrong! Rebellious sinners will not submit. They don't want the truth. They don't want to submit to God's authority. Only the Spirit of God can overcome that, that rebellion and resistance. And if, if witnessing countless healings of all sorts throughout three and a half years that they've already seen and admitted they were, were valid, if all of that and res restoration of the sight of the blind, cleansing of lepers, even the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead, if that did not cause them to believe, then would descending from the cross be the magic miracle? No. No. I mean, they could they say all kinds of things. Boy, what strange things do happen. You know? Wow, that was that was odd. You know? But let's make sure we get rid of him another way, you know. I mean, it's interesting when you read John chapter eleven, Jesus raises Lazarus. In the in the chapter, I think it's in chapter twelve, when they're in Bethany eating with Mary and Martha, and Lazarus has been raised, John actually says they wanted to kill Lazarus. They wanted to you know, think about that. This man was stone cold dead and they knew it. He's been raised from the dead. He's sitting at a dinner table eating and they're like, oh, listen, we've got to get rid of Jesus and Lazarus too because people are believing in him because of this guy. Think of that. Do you see what's wrong with us? We don't want God over us, period. And we will do anything to get away from that. We will remove the evidence if we have to. And later at the resurrection, they're going to pay people off to lie about it. And they know the truth. It's not a lack of information. It's not that we don't have enough knowledge. We are morally bankrupt and corrupt. We are wicked to the core. That is evident. This is me and you. God overcame that to bring you here. You remember the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, Luke 16? Jesus says, but Abraham said they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them, right? Let them hear the scriptures. He said, no, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. They had that. They still didn't believe. Well, friends, we, we pray. We preach and we pray and we recognize that at the end of the day, Conversion is a supernatural act of Almighty God. The Jews wanted a Messiah on their terms and according to their definition. And instead they should have embraced the Messiah God gave them and the one that had been described and foretold for centuries through their prophets. And they couldn't see it. Friends, we see the company, the crowd, the criminals, the claim, and lastly the criticism. The criticism with which Christ was crucified in verse 32, those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Now you remember I said we're going to talk about the, 
the only deathbed conversion in the Bible. Let's come back, full circle. Those who were crucified reviled him. Now, what were these criminals saying? Now, Luke 23, 39 says, One of the criminals who, who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Very similar to the rest of the crowd. But something happened. And it's not recorded here in Mark. But at Calvary, there was a sudden, <laughs> unexpected conversion. You know, I was talking about God doing something supernatural that only He can do, saving sinners. It happened that day. We see it with the, the centurion. Truly, this man was the Son of God. I believe he was genuinely converted that day. I do. But he wasn't the only one. The miraculous work of, of the sovereignty of God was at work that day. If you read Luke 23, 40 to 43, listen to this. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What in the world happened? I mean, as the hours of the cross drag on, you know, you read that they're both railing him. They're both doing the same thing in the beginning. They're both reviling Jesus just like everyone else. But something happened. The Spirit of God happened. And as the hours pass on, one criminal's conscience is gripped by grace. And when the impenitent thief, the impenitent criminal, resumed his mockings, this guy over here was a little different. <laughs> he was a lot different. I mean, he had been doing the same thing moments before. He's a new creature. He's born again. The penitent thief rebukes the unrepentant thief, the impenitent thief. He refuses to participate any longer in the reviling. And he demonstrates, even in those final moments, the fruits of repentance. The repentant thief prays a very theologically orthodox and sound prayer, you could say, as he's speaking to Jesus. And when you read his prayer, his words to Jesus, his prayer of confession, you see that this man believes in life after death. He believes the soul lives on after death. He believes that Jesus is a king, the king, that Jesus will rule over a kingdom. He believes that Jesus would soon enter that kingdom, that he would, he would conquer death, that he would live again, that he would overcome death. He, he acknowledges that he has no hope apart from the grace of God. And he affirms that grace is dispensed by that one in the middle. The result was this thief expressed a repentant faith and he affirms Christ as his Lord even as he's on the cross on one side. And you notice the contrast between these two criminals. The unrepentant thief, he's just like the rest of the crowd. He wants, he wants temporal blessings. He wants physical, earthly life spared. That's it. 
He'd have been happy if they just took him down from the cross and he went back to his way of crying. That's all he wanted. All he wanted was his life saved, physical life saved. He would inevitably, if they had taken him down, he would have returned to be the wicked criminal that he was, short of the grace of God. And so he expresses no interest in having God or in being with Christ. He would have, I think, returned immediately to his wickedness. His conscience was still captive to the devil. He has no fear of God. On the other hand, the converted thief never requested that his physical life be spared. Do you notice that? He actually says, listen, we're here and we deserve to be here. Right? That's, that's at the heart of repentance. Is agreeing with God about your own condition. I deserve to be here, man. We did it. We're guilty. We, we are where we should be. This is just. He's done nothing wrong. He doesn't deserve to be here. We do. I don't think I heard that come out of the other thief, the other rebel. He never acknowledged his sin. He never acknowledged his guilt. He never acknowledged the justice of God. And so he never requests anything but his physical life to be spared. But this man never even requests his physical life to be spared. He confesses his guilt, the justness of his condemnation. He longs to be rescued in the next life. And he even testifies to Jesus' innocence. And so what were the means that led to this man's conversion? What was, it, was it his observation of Jesus, his responses and his behaviors on the cross that impressed him? Had he maybe heard Jesus' words and preaching at some point in his life? And now God's bringing it home, bringing fruit from a previous sermon of Jesus. Maybe he was on the hillside when he fed the 5,000 and he remembers those words, he's the bread of life. I need that. I need that. Maybe it was one of the seven sayings on the cross. Maybe it was one of those sayings that he's heard that God has used to pierce him. You know, who would have thought... Who would have thought that this guy would be saved that day? Nobody. He had lived a life of sin. But, but friends, it's a reminder that no one, as long as there's breath in their lungs, no one is outside the reach of God. It was not, you know, it was not Jesus there performing another miracle. It was the fact that I think Jesus remained on the cross and he sees the atonement that he needs before his very eyes. He can look over and he can see. He can see that blood that we were singing about run down. He can, he can see it and God opens his eyes and gives him faith and grants him repentance. And so, you know, th there's no evidence that this man's less wicked than the other guy. There's no evidence that this man's more intelligent, more wise, you know, less corrupt in some way, less foolish. No. God's grace is amazing. I'll just, I'll just leave it there. God's grace is great. Now, I want to go back for a moment as we think about that, and I'll close by, by finishing what Dr. Moore said about Christopher Hitchens. He said, but I'm not sure Christopher Hitchens is in hell right now. It's not because I believe there's a second chance after death for salvation. I don't. It's not because I don't believe in hell or in God's judgment. I do. He said, it's because of a sermon I heard years ago that haunts me to this day, reminding me of the sometimes surprising persistence of the gospel. He said, 15 or so years ago, I heard an old Welsh pastor preach on Jesus' encounter with the thieves on the cross. 
The preacher paused to speculate about whether the penitent thief might have had any God-fearing friends or family members. You know, maybe he had some you know, followers of Jesus that, that loved Jesus, trusted in Christ, who saw him hanging there that day. He just, this, this preacher's just wondering. If so, they would have said, they probably would have never known about the terrorist's final act, his appeal to Jesus, remember me, remember me when you come into your kingdom, Luke 23, 42. They never would have heard Jesus pronounce, today you will be with me in paradise. These believing family members and friends would have assumed all their lives that this robber was in hell. Especially dying as he did under the visible judgment of God. They would have been shocked to meet this man in the kingdom of God. They, they would have said, we thought you were in hell. All, all this time we thought you were in hell. As they danced around him in the heavenly places, he said, that sermon changed everything for me about the way I preach funerals for unbelievers. He said, now, deathbed conversions are very rare. Typically, a conscience is so seared by then, so given over to the darkening of the mind that the gospel rarely is heard. We shouldn't count on last-second repentance. But, however rarely it does happen, and who knows, perhaps you have relatives who in the last seconds of breath breathed out a silent prayer of repentance and faith. You might be as surprised as the thief the thief's believing family. And who knows? He said, Christopher Hitchens heard the gospel enough, right? He, he traveled with Doug Wilson. He heard the gospel countless times. He knew the gospel. Often while debating believers, he said maybe the seed of the word might have embedded in his heart somewhere. And maybe, just maybe, it broke through sometime in the night as he gasped for last breath. Christopher Hitchens was a blasphemer, true enough, and a nasty character. Aren't we all? Aren't we all? In our different ways? Christ Jesus came for nasty characters like us. And the same blood of Jesus that can deliver us from wrath could do the same for Hitchens had he, if he, at any point embraced it. It's not likely, but it's possible. And if he did then Christopher Hitchens' past atheism would be no barrier to communion with God. It would be like my sin, crucified with Christ, buried and remembered no more. I don't know about Christopher Hitchens, he said. I don't know what happened in those last moments, but I do know that if he had embraced it, the gospel would be enough for him. I know that because it's enough for me. And I'm as deserving of hell as he is. Hell is real and judgment is certain. He said the gospel comes with a warning that one day it will be too late. But as long as there's breath, it is not yet too late. Perhaps Christopher Hitchens, like so many before him, persisted in his rebellion to the horror of the very end. But maybe not. Maybe he stopped his polemics and cried out, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I don't know, but I do know that the gospel offers forgiveness and mercy right to the edge of death's door. And I know that the kingdom of God is made up of ex-thieves and ex-murderers and ex-atheists like us. Friends, is that not 
what you want to hear today on Good Friday. I do. I want to hear that there is grace to the final breath, to death's door, that Christopher Hitchens could have blasphemed God till death's door. But a cry of repentance in that final breath, and he's saved. That's amazing. I say again to Thomas Guthrie 200 years ago, it cannot be too often or too loudly or too solemnly repeated that the Bible, which ranges over a period of 4,000 years, records but one instance of a deathbed conversion, one that none may despair and but one that none may presume. May we pray. Father, we, we just don't understand how amazing grace is. We don't understand how great your grace is. Lord, we would love to think today that a man like Christopher Hitchens, that Christopher Hitchens himself is with you. Lord, we know because of these men on the cross, we know that it is, it is possible. And some are saved in their dying breath. And Lord, I know someone today who may be dying today in a hospice care bed and I don't know if he's really saved. But I do know that he's heard the gospel. And Father, I do pray that in the final moments of his life if he has not confessed Jesus is Lord and received the forgiveness of his sins, I pray today that he would be saved. And Lord, there may be others in this, in this congregation today, in this service, on this Good Friday, who have loved ones that are a breath away from hell. And Father, I pray that we would be broken enough to breathe a prayer even now for them by name. We would pray that God, your grace, would reach them, even if it takes up until the, de the final moments of their life to do so. We thank you for the, the reminder that you've given us in your word. That your grace is able to save the one who is on a cross. Lord, we thank you for your grace in our lives, for calling us earlier than that. For giving us the blessing and privilege of knowing you and serving you for longer than a few minutes. But Lord, we thank you for how great your grace is for those like the thief on the cross. We praise you in Jesus' name, Lord. Amen.